I pray you've had an opportunity just to be still and to realize that this table that is set before me and you before us is never meant to be a tag on at the end of a service. It's never meant for us to just lapse into complacency or a cliche. It is meant to draw us closer to Jesus. Probably one of the most famous passages of Scripture on the Lord's table is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. And yet, it is often some of the most confused words, mispreached and misapplied. And so I hope today, as a way to walk through this, I just want to give you some quick pointers. And then we're going to look at some do's and don'ts of the Lord's table and then celebrate together. But I want to read this passage. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. The church at Corinth was like the Las Vegas of the first century. It is where everybody would come. It was a city of commerce and and it was just bustling and all kinds of people from all across the world. There were two intersections of commerce that crisscrossed through Corinth and they were abundant in wealth and all kinds of cultures, and their economy was booming, and this church was probably the most gifted and diverse, and yet, as we learn, messed up churches that's ever written about in the Bible. In fact, Paul writes four letters to the Corinthians. God inspired two of them. And if you read 2 Corinthians and you listen how Paul says, I wrote this letter to you, and it was a hard letter, I can't imagine what he must have said. But look at what he does say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. After complimenting this church about the way that they functioned in regards to submission and understanding the role of men and women, he now begins in verse 17 and says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So in other words, however they were gathering for this ordinance, Paul is saying there are some serious problems. And the problem wasn't that they weren't doing it. The problem wasn't that people weren't coming wanting to be a part of it. The problem was in how they did it. Okay? So he says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Imagine a church where at the end of the Lord's table, the church was actually further apart than together. Imagine if that was true. I've experienced that. I've experienced and watched where churches have gathered together and everybody looks all so clean and neat and tidy on the outside and everybody smiles and everybody participates all the while knowing as a young boy, as a teenager, as a young adult that there were people in church that wouldn't talk to each other. There were people in church that others would never invite over to their home. There were people in church that would come to my home as a boy and I'd sit at the the table and I'd listen to them literally fillet the pastor. I mean, it was roast pastor every Sunday afternoon where everybody was an armchair quarterback of the preaching and of the sermon and of the service and how everybody did what everybody did. But man, we all looked good taking part of communion. And literally, really, it was not for the good, but for the worse. And Paul says in verse 18, for in the first place, When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. In other words, there were cliques. There were fractions. The church was almost getting together. The rich were pooling together. The poor were pooling together. Different people that had common interests were pooling together. And he says, and I believe it in part. 
Now this is an odd verse, verse 19. For there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In other words, Paul says, listen, the one thing about division, the one thing about awkwardness, the one thing about all of this is you will quickly discover who the real Christians are, who's playing church and who is the church. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you, Paul says? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now you'll notice a a real change in the tenor of the letter. Paul says, Corinthians, listen, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This was special revelation. This was God speaking. Paul says, listen, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, when the night when he would give up everything and those that were closest to him would betray him and run away from him. Some Peter would later curse him and deny him. Mark, we find out, runs away naked. We find out about all these things through the gospel. He took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. In a moment, physically speaking, when Jesus could have been selfish, he was selfless. And Paul reminds the church of this. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, not just eating of it, but looking at his example, looking what he did. Do all of this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And now he goes from looking backwards to looking forwards. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you do. He's not saying I do. He's saying you do. Jesus told the disciples, the churches, when you do this and you do it properly, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now Paul kind of comes back to his topic in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now a couple of things. Notice he does not tell them to stop celebrating the table of the Lord. He does not say who can and who can't. He simply says if you do it in an unworthy manner. Well, we already know what the unworthy manner is, right? It is a sense of division. It's a sense of self-righteousness. It's a sense of selfishness. It's a sense of coming to the table thinking, I am worthy. I have rights. When you think that way, you're actually in an unworthy manner, and you will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, Paul's reminding them, if you come to the table of the Lord and that's your attitude, you don't get the gospel. You don't understand why Jesus came and why he suffered and why he died. Then this verse, let a person examine himself then. And I find this verse is often quoted to people before communion as a way to think about either the last seven days or the last month or however long it's been. And you kind of almost do confession. You try and rehearse and figure out all the things you've done wrong. And that is not the context of this passage. 
Paul is telling them, no, no, no. Examine yourself to see if you're coming to the table of the Lord, understanding how we are community. We are one in Christ. We are together and we come towards it saying, Jesus, I am not worthy. I am messy. I am dirty. I have a collage of failures behind me and even my successes are all yours. But I come with everybody else shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm. And Lord, I thank you for this table. For anyone who eats and drinks without, look at this, discerning the body. Now, that's a play on words. Paul is not talking about just the body of Christ. He's talking about the body as in the church, the body of Christ. If you're not aware of what it means to be a part of community, eats judgment on himself. And Paul says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You see... The church is the bride of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful how we talk about the church. Because guess what? There's no such thing as a perfect church. Only a perfect Savior. My father used to tell me when I was growing up, Stephen, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll wreck it. And yet so many people want to try to find the perfect church. No, no, no. Come together as imperfect people who are all coming together in our imperfection to serve and pursue and come to a perfect Savior. Lord willing, I'll say it till you get sick of it. Everywhere we fail, Christ succeeds. Everywhere we fail, Christ succeeds. Now notice what he says. But, verse 31, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words... That's Paul's way of saying, if you keep preaching the gospel to yourself, you will realize you are never going to stand before God the Father and be judged for sin. Let me tell you something, Christian. If you are a Christian, if you have come to Jesus and said, I am a sinner, I am sinful, I confess and I repent and I need Christ in my life who has paid the price. Do you realize from that day to the day you die or the day Christ comes, all of our sin, past, present and future is taken care of you and i are never going to answer to god as judge ever our sins have been forgiven that is why first john chapter 1 verse 9 many of you can quote it if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness again a verse so often used in evangelism and it's ironic because it's actually written to christians it's not an evangelistic verse john is writing to christians reminding christians if you can trust god with your salvation trust him with all your junk and keep running to him over and over and over again you never have to stop running to him his grace never runs out you see, so many of us think when we got saved that Jesus took care of everything in our past and he brought us back to zero. And now it's up to us to try and earn favor in the bank account. No, when Jesus died, he not only paid all of your sin, he then deposited all of his righteousness on your account. So every time you and I fail, every time you and I sin, every time we are hypocritical, every time we screw up and slip up and Satan comes to accuse us or our flesh just tells us that we're, we're not measuring up, all you know what you do, you go, wait a second, uh, 
my bank account is filled with Jesus and you, God's able to always take another withdrawal and it never runs out. And that's why he says, you'll not be judged. But, verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, notice the difference. Notice what he says. If you're a Christian and you do wrong and you refuse to own it, you will receive God's discipline, but notice you will not be condemned. And I'm going to tell you something. I would much rather experience the discipline of the Lord than the condemnation of the world. Because the discipline of the Lord means he loves you, means he's jealous over you, means he's saying, mine. I wish I could get every one of us to do that every morning, to get up before you go into your day and realize that God the Father says, mine over you. I don't know if you've ever watched, I'd love to get all the adults to admit this. How many of you have watched Finding Nemo? There we go. Come on, hands up, nice and high. Bob's back there. Bob's probably his favorite movie for all I know. Finding Nemo, you love it when you know those seagulls, when they're all there and something pops, mine, 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 right? And they're just, they've got a one-track mind. Whatever it is, they're going after it. God says mine over every one of you that are his. None of you can get away from him. You are sealed forever as his. And so when you come to the table of the Lord and you are belligerent about your sin or unrepentant about your sin god is not up in heaven going let me just lay a beating on him no 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 god says i love you too much to let you run from me i will go get you i get asked all the time especially by younger people that have grown up in the church if i've ever doubted my salvation my parents came to christ when i was five i came to christ when i was 21 and i'm now 43 i don't know if that makes me middle-aged or not I just know I got a lot of kilometers on the tire treads, all right? But I can honestly tell you before God, I have never once doubted my salvation. I've doubted all kinds of things. I've never doubted my salvation. And the reason is not because I'm special. Here's the thing. My life has been one example after another where Jesus has chased after me even when I've been running away. He has never let me go. Because when I get stubborn, he comes after me and disciplines me and brings me back. Now, I got to tell you, I'm not going, yay, Jesus discipline, right? You know, Hebrews 12 tells us all that. None of us like that. For those of you that are growing up, if you ever got spanked, and I know that might be a bad word today, but my parents loved me enough to spank me. But I will tell you, when my father would say, okay, Steve, you're going to get spanked, I never once said to dad, thank you, father, for loving me so much to spank me today. I never once did that. It hurt. I didn't like it. When he told me I was grounded or he took away something from me, praise the Lord, he didn't have cell phones to take from me back then. But all those types of things, I never once liked it. But you know what? I was also told that the older I get, the smarter my dad would get. And that is so true. And I have learned that the things that my earthly father have done to me, and I am still learning that the things my heavenly father does to me sometimes are never because he's ticked with me, never because he's mad. It's because he loves me so much, he won't let me run away. He won't let me run away. And so he says we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, verse 33, my brothers, when you come together to eat, now notice this, 
wait for one another. Now, I get asked this a lot by people that are grown, grown up in the church. Like, why do we do what we do? And if you'll notice here at Calvary, when we pass out everything, everybody waits till everybody has some food, and then we eat together. And this is one of the big reasons. Wait for one another. You see, the problem here in, 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 in the church as they were going through this was people were eating as soon as they got in. The rich were gathering together, and I'll explain that in just a little bit, but wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home. If you're not going to be able to wait and last and share, then go ahead and eat at home, but don't, don't do that when you come together so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. I quickly want to run you through a couple of things here. One man has written the ultimate purpose of the church is the worship of God the Father through Jesus Christ as enabled by the Holy Spirit. Now, folks, listen, if you and I believe that, and I mean really believe it, then one of the highest forms of corporate worship is when we celebrate the Lord's table, right? Why? Now, think about that. Why is this one of the best displays of a church functioning together? Because in this celebration, we're really doing two things. Remember in our passage, we're looking backwards what Jesus did for us. He was born innocently. He lived perfectly. He died innocently. He rose victoriously, and he reigns eternally. Can I get an amen from a, from a Baptist church this morning? There we go, all right? But second, we look forward as well. We're looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Listen, church, Jesus could come today. Do you believe that? Do you want him to? I wonder how many of us, if Jesus were to say he was coming back today, we would say, hang on, Lord, I just got a couple things. And for some of you that have grown up in church, don't tell me you don't know what I'm talking about, okay? Because I grew up in church. And I remember, in fact, let me be completely honest. I remember I was so in love with the world. I used to pray prayers like this. Lord, I know you're coming back, but could you let me get my driver's license before you do first so I can experience what it's like to be able to drive? And then when I started dating and I got engaged, I used to say, Lord, could you wait till I get married so I know what marriage is like before you come back? And then I used to start to pray and say, Lord, could you wait till I have kids? And it's funny, all those things, you might think, well, that's natural and normal. Yes, it is to some degree, but for me to say I want that more than I want the return of Christ means I actually think God's stuff will please me more than God himself. How many of us are so in love with Jesus, we really want him to come today? Today. How badly do you and I want Jesus to come and remember that we need to come before the Lord. And we really need to realize that we come and we consider all of what he has done for us. When Peter preached his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, he told all about the prophecies of Jesus. He details the account of the suffering for sin. But at the end of his sermon, this is what he says in Acts chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Speaking about Jesus. Now listen. Listen how he finishes. This Jesus whom you crucified. Talk about how to win friends and influence people. Peter's gospel message was all about Christ, and he says, but you've got to own it that Jesus went to the cross for you. 
Jesus went to the cross, and you are responsible. I am responsible. We put him there. And I love this. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, my friends, I want to tell us, as we come to the table of the Lord, that the Lord's Supper, as James Hamilton Jr. writes, is a proclamation of the gospel by those who embrace the gospel, by those whose identity, identity is shaped by the gospel. Now, think about that. This table today is a table, it's a proclamation of the gospel supposedly by a group of people who embrace the gospel, whose identity is shaped by the gospel. Is that you and I? But in verses 17 to 22, in our passage, I'll just quickly run you through this, you see the perversion of the Lord's Supper. You see the perversion of the Lord's Supper. These Christians were talking the talk, but not walking the walk. They knew all the cliches. They knew how to quote the verses. They knew how they were supposed to act. They, they were professional Christians. I remember this the first time I was ever exposed to this. Because my parents came to Christ when I was five, my mother was uh, United slash Salvation Army. My father was Anglican. Um, when they both came to Christ and got baptized, they joined a Baptist church. And so really all of my life, all I've ever known is a Baptist church. Met Debbie in a Baptist church. We got married. We had three children. And so they were all born into, and all they've ever known is Baptist. And I remember the shock of this. One summer day in Prince Edward Island, the window was open, and my boys were playing with a bunch of friends from the neighborhood, playing street hockey in our driveway, because we had a big, long, wide driveway. And somehow our oldest got into discussion of religion with the boys. And I was sitting at the computer in the, in the, in the kitchen and I could hear one boy say well I'm Catholic and another fellow said I'm Anglican another fellow said he was a, and then Brandon pipes up and says well I'm Baptist and it shocked me because Brandon saw the label over the door as his identity he he didn't realize that no your identity is in Christ your label is not important and that really pointed me to how I was teaching my son our son, about Jesus. I didn't want Brandon to be a professional Baptist. I wanted him to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. And that's what we should be. And so these people walked the walk, but they didn't talk, or they talked the talk, but they didn't walk the walk. They denied the Lord himself. They had a form of godliness, but denied it. Because when they came together, they were having what was called a love feast. Now, you have to understand this, okay? These, kind, these people, First, first Corinthians, the Corinths, were not real Baptists because they ate first and then did church, all right? Baptists do church and then we eat, all right? That's our MO, all right? So these guys got together and they would have what was called a love feast. And I have to tell you, this thing got so bad that in the second and third century, they outlawed love feasts. But the church was getting together and the rich were gathering together and they were having all this food and they were eating before the poor could get there. And often the food either ran out or the rich had drunk so much wine, they had literally gotten drunk. And so people were going hungry. And then they were supposed to have the Lord's table. Imagine that. All of this selfishness, all this clickiness, all this greed, all this sense of entitlement. And now you were going to go and act like a church? That was the problem. That was the problem. 
But how often do we come to church and we act good, but we're not good? And what I mean by that is we're not good with each other. And so they had perverted the table of the Lord. But you'll notice in verses 23 to 26 that here's the purpose of the Lord's Supper. The purpose of the Lord's Supper. Jesus' actions and words here, when, he, when Paul says, listen, I received a revelation, all right, in verse 23 and onwards. He goes, these words and actions were not merely prospective. He wasn't just explaining to the 12 the meaning and significance of what would happen the next day. When Jesus instituted the Lord's table at that Passover meal, what Jesus did and said was to, repeat it in, to be repeated into the future in a way that would bring him to the memory of his people. So when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it wasn't just for the benefit of the 12 so that they understood, hey, Jesus and us are good and, and, and we're special to Jesus. No, he was literally giving the 12 something to celebrate over and over again and pass it on to Christians for now over two millennia. It reminds you of the Passover. All right, if you know your Old Testament, the Passover came as a result of the people of Israel were enslaved to Egypt. And after nine plagues where Pharaoh just hardened his heart and hardened his heart, finally God says to Moses, I am going to send the angel of death through the land of Egypt. And I will kill the firstborn of every family as a sign of my power and my authority. And so they instituted a meal called a Passover meal. And they killed the Passover lamb. And all the people of Israel, they had to take some of the blood and wash it, put it on the lintels of the door, on the two sides and the top part of the door. And when the angel of death came through, it says, if he saw the blood, he would pass over you. Hymns have been written about this. I will pass over you. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Some of these old hymns of the faith are all based on this passage. And then, because God delivered Israel, because after this happened to Pharaoh, he said, finally, I'm letting Israel go. And, of course, he chases them out towards the Red Sea, and God brings them through the Red Sea and annihilates the armies of Egypt. And to this day, Israelites still celebrate the Passover every year. God takes that Passover and institutes the Lord's table, the preparation of the Lord's table, which we are to celebrate often to remind ourselves that more than just a lamb dying to free people on one night, Jesus Christ, the real Passover lamb, died for the sins of all humanity for all of time. And that's your Savior and mine if you know him. That's what we are to be going through. One man said this, don't go through the motions without going through any emotions. I think sometimes in Baptist churches, and I, I will be hard on Baptists sometimes, I have to be honest, we tend to lack or we're afraid of our emotions. We've seen other people in other denominations maybe do some things with emotions or emotionalism, and we think they've gone overboard with it, but then instead of act, we react, and we go all the way over here where we act like we're walking corpses. Guys, it's okay to let your emotions get the better of you. When was the last time you heard a praise song driving in the car and your eyes just welled up? When was the last time you were in the car and you heard a Christian song or somewhere and, and you, you just you put the sunroof open, you rolled down the window, and you just sang to the top of your lungs, probably badly. But you just praised Jesus. One of the greatest gifts that Debbie and I got when we moved away was from a dear sister in Christ. Her name is Ellen. And she gave Debbie and I this plaque, and on it it says, I want to dance like no one's watching. I want to sing. And it's from a song by Chris Tomlin. I love that. 
because I am so stereotypically white, it's unfunny. All right? I have no rhythm. I cannot dance. When I dance, it's like someone having a seizure. All right? But you know what? Sometimes when I'm alone with God, when I'm in this big, this medium-sized building, I guess, and no one's around, I turn on the Christian music, and I come out here, and sometimes I sit in the different rows of chairs, and I pray for the people that will sit in those chairs. But sometimes I just, me and Jesus, man, I get jiggy with it up and down this aisle. I'm telling you, if there's a hidden camera anywhere in here, it's bad. All right? But when was the last time your emotions just got the better of you that were focused towards Christ? And this is what this is all about. And then, finally, I want you to realize there's the preparation of the Lord's Supper. So there's purpose of the Lord's Supper. There's the, sorry, the perversion of the Lord's Supper, the purpose of the Lord's Supper, and the preparation of the Lord's Supper, which is where he says, examine yourself. And as we do that, I'm going to ask Daniel and Steve if they would come forward. I want to quickly give you some do's and don'ts. I want to quickly give you some do's and don'ts of the Lord's table. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't want you to dismiss the ritual of this sacred celebration. Don't dismiss the ritual of this sacred celebration. This is meant to be liturgical. This is meant to have an official way that we do it. We want to follow the pattern that God gave us. This is a sacred celebration. Here's what I do want you to do. I want you to joyfully celebrate and praise the unbreakable promise of this table. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, that what God has started, he's going to finish. And we can be confident of that. Paul tells the Corinthians in, chap- in the second letter that is recorded in Scripture, 2 Corinthians, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. So don't dismiss, don't be afraid of the ritual of the Lord's table. Celebrate the pray- and praise the unbreakable promise of this table. When we search all of the scriptures, we will find that God is pleased with tradition and worship done right, where he is the object of it. He is against the traditions of man, not the traditions of himself. And that's why we are going to do this in a very specific way. Secondly, don't turn off your imagination. Don't turn off your imagination. Don't become robots. Let your emotions and your mind embrace the rich symbolism that Christ left for us. This is unleavened bread. This is grape juice for us here at this church that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The reason we take that bread and we tear it apart and we break it is because it is to remind us that Jesus was broken for us physically and spiritually and emotionally in every way possible. The greatest unity that creation has ever known, the Trinity, was torn apart when Jesus bore the wrath of God's righteousness for our sinfulness. So embrace that. These symbols are important. They're very important. As elders, these are more than just bread and juice. This represents the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. J.B. Phillips is right to say this, for Christians who are prepared to use their minds and imaginations, communion can deepen and enrich their spiritual lives. Thirdly, 
Don't focus only on the negative. Do focus on the promise for renewed grace and mercy. I think often in our zest and zeal to quote-unquote be biblical, we are more known for what we're against in the church today than what we're actually about. We're known about everything we're against. Now let me explain. While we know that just because the elders, because I ask Daniel as an elder or Steve filling in because some of our other elders are away, to pray over this, we know that this doesn't become the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus Christ. There's not some weird sadistic cannibalism that's going to go on here. There is a richness and a symbolism of what we're supposed to do. But another way we do this is sometimes we get so wrapped up in the symbolism, we jettison it, which we shouldn't do. But sometimes we come and we take the, the, the table of the Lord and we make it so negative as if we're going to rehearse all the things we've done wrong. We're going to beat ourselves up over and over again for sin. Yet Jesus said, do this in remembrance of him, not in remorse of him. In remembrance of him, not in remorse of him. Friends, the point of this table is not to focus on our sin or even on the sufferings of Jesus, although both are present. The center of this table is the grace of God. The redeeming grace of God who redeems us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But all too often we come to this table with an attitude of trying to find a cleansing, not because we have a cleansing. And because we are cleansed, like we need to remember afresh our sinfulness and wickedness and how much it costs God, as if God is like the mother who constantly tells her children how much she suffered giving birth to them. I always knew when I really ticked mom off, because she would always say to me, 32 hours I was in labor with you. God doesn't do that. God never looks at you and I and says, do you know how much I suffer for you? God always looks at us and says, you're my child. I love you. I love you. Folks, anywhere in the New Testament where the death of Jesus is being proclaimed, it is not put forth in tragedy, but put forth in hope and promise. Fourthly, don't allow our entertainment culture to complete your participation. Do participate and be blessed to see others come with you. Let me explain. Mel Gibson did not get it right in The Passion. Okay, I know that it is our modern most go-to movie when we want to try and feel bad about the crucifixion. But it is obvious that Mel Gibson didn't get it right because the passion didn't change his life. It didn't change his life. All the movie did was provoke a pity for the physical suffering of Jesus. And while I would never want to minimize the pain nor the suffering According to Isaiah, remember when Brother John wrote, read Isaiah 53, and this is why we read it, Isaiah 53, it says, it was the will of God to crush him. In fact, the old King James says, it pleased God to crush him. What does that mean? It means because this table represents the love of God for his creation in mankind. Those are made after his image. It is a picture of grace. You realize what is grace? Grace is undeserved merit or an undeserved gift, but finish it. You know what grace is? It's an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. That's what grace is. Grace is when you and I get something from someone who doesn't owe us anything. 
So when God gives us his grace, he gives you and I something that we don't deserve, but he doesn't owe us. That's what this table represents. And finally, don't come to the table without sin. Come to this table with your sin. Again, remember chapter 11, verses 27 to 34. We talk about examining ourselves. We think we're supposed to somehow do this internal sin list check, and that's not what he's saying. He's saying we are supposed to come together in the context of unity and community. Paul is speaking against a sense of worthiness, as if some were better than others and more worthy than others. Let me finish by saying this, quoting Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, the prophet says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. I love these words. And he who has no money, come by and eat. It's like Isaiah, what are you talking about? He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. This is God speaking. Do these words not sound familiar? In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus would say, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So may this table of the Lord today be something amazing and special.